invite you to open your Bible up to the letter of Colossians. This is our second message in Colossians. Last week, we did an overview where we read through the entire book. We saw the big theme, the main idea of the book. Now, some of you, many of you weren't here. I know we have a lot of college students that are back with us now as college, uh, the next semester is starting up. And, And so, To start out this morning, we're actually going to do, spend some time actually reviewing what we did last week. But there's a very specific reason for why we're going to do that. All the books in the Bible have a very specific purpose. They were written for a reason. And if we, can, if we forget the reason, sometimes if we don't understand the scope of the book, what it's trying to accomplish, we can miss out on some of the details, some of the nuances of what's going on in each passage. That's the case for our passage this morning. When we're in this first part, if we don't understand what Paul is trying to accomplish, the bigger thing that's going on, then we might miss out on what's happening here. So here's the first question. What's the problem that the Colossians are facing? In other words, why is Paul writing this letter? What is he hoping to accomplish? What we saw last week is that Paul's writing because he has learned there is a threat that is entering the church, there is a temptation that is being brought up that has the potential to keep the Colossians from accomplishing their purpose. That this heretical teaching that is in their midst is tempting them away from what they are meant to do. So what is this threat? What is the temptation that has come in. It's the, de- the temptation to depart from Christ. In chapter 2, we see two elements of this threatening temptation, two faulty formulas that inevitably lead to failure. The first formula is one that calls people to rely on less than Jesus. And last week we put up on the screen, we, we had these different formulas that we could think of even mathematically. This less than Jesus is relying on something apart from Christ. Paul talks about this in chapter 2 when he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, according to all these things, and not according to Christ. Don't be tempted to move away from Christ because you're trusting in something less than Christ. This first formula is one that we often rely on. It's, it's that thing, idea, hey, you don't need Jesus in order to fulfill your purpose. You don't need to rely on him. Jesus is okay for some things, but, but you've got to do this yourself. This is the temptation we see in the Garden of Eden where the serpent tells Eve, you, you don't, You don't need God in order to accomplish what you really want to accomplish. You can do this yourself. You can be like God. Just take the fruit. We see the result of what happened in that. The temptation was to call her away from God, and the result was that she was separated, as all humanity was separated, away from God. 
The second formula looks different, but its reality is the same. It's just a slightly different clothing that it has. It's the call to trust in more than Jesus. Hey, no one's saying you don't need Jesus. You, you totally need Jesus. But is that really all you're going to trust? Really? You, you don't think there's some things you need to do? You don't think there's some work for you? I mean, Jesus is great. He died for us. But, but we got to meet him halfway. That's why the Bible has so many rules for us, so many lists of things for us to do. That looks plausible. It's a temptation that we often fall in, but it's a lie. It's still calling us away from Christ. It seems reasonable. There are lots of things that the Bible tells us to do, but none of these are in order for us to earn our salvation. The formula, just like the first, is calling us away from God. And Paul has a problem with both of these formulas. Paul knows that if we follow these faulty formulas in order to fulfill our own purposes, it inevitably leads to failure. We will not fulfill our true purpose. And that's not what Paul wants for the Colossians. Paul points them to their true purpose. Their purpose is to make Christ preeminent. He says that in chapter 1, verse 18, that Christ might be preeminent, that he might be first. He already is first, but we are called to recognize him that way because he's the most holy. He's the most worthy. Our, our purpose then is to make much of Jesus, to glorify him. If that's our purpose, if we are to make Christ preeminent in our lives, is that accomplished through making less or more of Jesus? No. Our purpose is accomplished in just Jesus. And we had this different formula that we used. It's not more than Jesus. It's not less than Jesus. It's just Jesus. It's everything that he has accomplished. That's Paul's formula. It all comes back to Jesus. You need to cling to Jesus. You need to grow in Jesus. You need to walk worthy of Jesus. Why? Because that's what makes Christ preeminent in your life. Now that's our quick review. That's the context of Colossians. Here's the next question. Is the threat that Paul sees really that dangerous? Is it really that big of a deal that it warrants Paul sending someone hundreds, maybe thousands of miles with this letter, knowing that this is going to take a long time for them to get there? He's going to have to write it. It's going to cost something to get this message to the Colossians. Is the threat really, is this temptation really that big a deal? It is. And, 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 but I want you to not just assume the answer. I really want you to consider it for yourself. Have you found this temptation that seeks to call us away from Christ to be a danger in your own life? Can you identify times where you were tempted to rely on something that was less than Jesus in order to accomplish your own purpose? Can you recall seasons where you were enticed to trust in something more than Jesus in order to attain success by your own merit. What was the result? What was the result when you turned away from Jesus? Now, I'm not just posing this question to you. It's a question that I've been considering as we've been going through Colossians. And I have found that I often 
do both. At some point, I look and I'm like, no, I'm not really doing what I'm made to do. I'm not really accomplishing my purpose. So I've got it. I'm going to come up with the perfect plan. I'm going to start this year. I'm going to every day, every day, I'm going to do this, this, and this. And I am going to do this. I will accomplish my purpose. What's the problem? It's all focused on me. I can do this. And inevitably, what happens? I fail. And after I fail, I come over to this side, which is I'm going to do anything possible to just not think about Jesus. Because I already feel like such a failure. I am going to distract myself. I'm going to go buy some things. I'm going to go do all these things that the world tells me this is what will make me feel fulfilled. And I'm going to seek fulfillment in other things. I go from this extreme to this extreme. This temptation is active and dangerous in my own life. And I think that many of you have found it to be so in your life as well. Wouldn't it be nice if Paul could start his letter by giving us some kind of protection against the temptations that call us away from Christ? Wouldn't it be nice if Paul showed us a way of guarding ourselves against this kind of attack? Well, good news. He does. That's exactly what Paul's going to do in the first eight verses. Here's our big idea for this morning. Truth in Christ guards us against temptations that call us away from Christ. Truth in Christ guards us against temptations that call us away from Christ. In our passage this morning, Paul is going to provide two lines of defense all based on what is true in Christ. Christ. These truths and how we use them will help guard us against the temptations that call us away from Christ. So let's jump in. Let's look at verse, the first section, which is Paul's greeting in the first two verses. This is what it says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. This first part of the letter is what we would expect to be at the beginning of a letter. It's the greeting. This follows the formula. If you look at the other epistles in the Bible, if if you're a historian and you look at other letters from that time, this follows the same formula. It talks about who the author is. It says who the recipients of the letter are. And then it has some basic greeting. We have all of those elements here. The temptation for us is to just skip past this. Hey, let's get, let, let's get to the good stuff. Let, let's get in. We, we don't have time to talk about this. We, we already talked about it last week. We know who Paul is. We know who Colossians are. So let's actually get to the thing that's going to help us against these attacks. And I'm going to confess to you, that's what I did for most of my week. As I was studying this passage, I basically, as I look back, I'm like, man, I kind of just assumed it started in verse 3. Everything that I was doing, the big idea that I came up with, all was starting from verse 3. But if we do that, we're actually going to miss something that Paul does right at the beginning that is part of our protection, a truth he shares on what we can do to protect us from the temptations that are calling us away from Christ. So what, what does Paul do. Paul points to the truth of who they are. Everything at the beginning is the truth of our identity 
in Christ. Paul could have made this a much shorter greeting. He could have said, from Paul to the Galatians, hello. He could have done that, but he doesn't. Already from the beginning, he's like, no, I want you to know something. I know where this book is going. I know the problem you're facing, and I'm already going to start addressing it by giving you a tool right now. So what does he do? First, he talks about himself. How does Paul describe himself? Paul, an apostle of, G- of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Do you think if Paul were around in, in the time where, where this, this heresy that's coming in, the, this call away from Christ, how effective do you think that strategy would have been against Paul? I'm willing to bet not great. Why? Paul is confident in who he is. He knows who he is in Christ. He knows what he's been called to. He's not going to say, wait, what are you talking about leaving Christ? No, this is my identity. Paul, an apostle. He's one that's been sent. He's one that's been commissioned. Of whom? Of Jesus Christ. How did this happen? Is this the career path that Paul chose? Is this what he was always dreaming of? Of like, man, someday I just really want to be an apostle. No, Paul's life actually was going the opposite direction. Before he was Paul, he was Saul. And what did Saul do? He persecuted the church. He went after the church. And yet now, Paul sees everything different. Why? Because he has encountered Christ. He knows he has a new identity in Christ. He didn't just earn the, he didn't earn the position. It was given to him. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Paul also includes Timothy, our brother. We, we know that this letter is written primarily by Paul because there are a few points in the book where Paul says, you know, remember my chains, I, Paul, write this to you. So primarily this is from Paul. But he's also including Timothy here and he talks about another element that we have in Christ, our brother. He's not saying, this is not literally someone by flesh and blood, a sibling to them. How is Paul, uh, Timothy their brother? Because they're all in Christ. Because they have a one father. Because they are part of the family of God. It is their spiritual brother. But now let's look at how Paul addresses the Colossians. He says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. The word saints here, I thought this was interesting, is literally the word holy. If you have uh, the NIV, if you're reading from the NIV, what you will have, it will say, the holy ones. Now, if you've been around church and you've, you've heard this before, what does the word holy mean? Set apart. To the ones who are set apart. To the ones who are faithful brothers. Paul is writing to those who God has called out, who God has chosen But that element, that work of God in calling them out, that divine sovereign choice also has a human response, which is belief. They are faithful brothers. That word faithful also at different times is translated believing. To the holy ones, to the believing brothers. Now just an aside here, because we're talking about brothers And I have not asked all of the sisters in our congregation to leave the auditorium. That's because when we're talking about brothers, this word here is sometimes just, depending on the context, siblings. Brothers and sisters. 
We know that Colossians is not written to just the brothers because in chapter 3, Paul is going to address the women. This book is for all of us if we are the ones who are set apart and have believed in Christ Jesus. And then he does the greeting. Grace and peace to you. Grace and peace from God our Father. Again, we see their identity because they are under grace and their position is one of peace. Both of those come from God. And the order is important. It's always grace that precedes peace. We can't have peace. We can't be in good standing with God if he hasn't first lavished his grace upon us. Grace from God our Father. Unmerited favor. Grace upon grace and peace. The result of that grace is that we also have peace with God. Do you see that right from the beginning, Paul is pointing the Colossians to truth. This is who I am. I am writing to you from a place of authority according to God's will. This is who you are. You are set apart in Christ. You are faithful brothers in Christ. You are people of grace and peace from God. So how does knowing our identity help protect us from temptations. Because when we aren't sure of who we are, we start looking for the answer in all the wrong places. There is a huge problem in our culture right now, an endemic that everyone is trying to find out who they really are. Look into yourself. The solution of trying to find who they are is all self-centered. Look into yourself. Find out who you really are. Be true to yourself. But when we look in the wrong places, when the temptation is, hey, don't, don't look to Jesus for the answer. Look at yourself for the answer. When we are pulled away, what is that going to lead to? Failure. I'd love to say that this is just a problem of the world, and we're, we are way past that. Please, I'm in Christ. I don't struggle with that thing anymore not true we regularly struggle with this one of the reasons we are so susceptible to the temptations that call us away from jesus is because we forget our identity in jesus what story can we think of where someone forgot their true identity and became susceptible to a terrible temptation we've already talked about it adam and eve what, what does satan come and say to them? How does the serpent tempt them away from God? This is what he says in Genesis 3, verses 4 and 5. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So he's already undermining the truth. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Your identity is going to be different. You are going to become like God. But in order to become like God, you need to depart from God. You need to do your own thing. You will be like God. That sounds great. 
I mean, how many of us when we were kids thought, man, if I just could have all the power, if I could just have, take a couple of these attributes from God, if I could just be omniscient, omnipotent, if I could have some of those things, man, that would be awesome. You will be like God. What did he forget? Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our own image, after our likeness. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You will be like God. What's so tragic about the temptation? She already was like God. No other creation was given the honor of being created in the image of God. That was a privilege that was set aside for humanity. Nothing else could claim, oh, we are like God. But Eve forgot. Adam, who was with her, forgot. This is the reality for us. When we lose sight of our identity in Christ, we are susceptible to temptations that call us away from Christ. So what's Paul's first line of defense? Confidence. Confidence in who we are in Christ. This is so important for us. Truth in Christ guards us against temptations that call us away from Christ. Often the truth we need to remember and reflect on is the truth of who we are in Christ. Confidence of who we are in Christ guards us against temptations that call us away from Christ. Something that says, oh no, this is what you need in order to achieve your identity. No, what I need is what I've already been given. It's who I am in Christ. Let's move on to the second protection. We've looked at Paul's greeting. Now let's look at the truth that we find in Paul's gratitude. Let's read verses 3 through 8. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. First things first, we see that Paul is thankful. This is easy to remember our little rhyme. Paul has an attitude of gratitude. He's thankful. Not sometimes. We always thank God whenever we pray for you. But here's the question. What is the object of Paul's gratitude? What what is the object of Paul's gratitude? When we read through this passage, we see a lot of of personal pronouns uh, talking all about the Colossians. You, your, what you have done. But right at the beginning, Paul is very clear on the object of his gratitude. What is the object of his gratitude? It's God. Paul's not saying, thank you, Colossians. Thank you, thank you, thank you for for your testimony. Thank you for what you've done. No, no. I'm going to thank God for your testimony. I'm going to look to God because that's the truth. That's who's really doing this work. 
The object of Paul's gratitude is God. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. We could think that this is just a way maybe for Paul to get in the good graces of the Colossians. You know, he's going to talk about some things later in the book that are a little hard. So let's just start the letter. Um, We know that Paul has never met the Colossians before. We see that in chapter 2. So let's just start this relationship off on a, in a good spot. Let me say some nice things. Let me butter you up. Let me just get you to a place where you just feel good about yourself. That's why Paul's starting with all these things of like, hey, I thank God because you're this and you're this and you're this. That's not what's going on. Paul is actually giving an example to them of the strategy they need to protect them. And his strategy all comes back to thankfulness. Now, you might think, ah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I see that. Well, here, let me, let me try to convince you. Thankfulness is talked about in every single chapter of Colossians. Colossians 1, 3, we always thank God. That's Paul. But then he starts telling them what they're supposed to do. Colossians 1, 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Colossians 2, 7, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Colossians 3, 15, and be thankful. Colossians 3, 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Colossians 4.2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Why is thankfulness so thematic in Colossians? Because gratitude helps us remember the truth of what we have received in Christ. This is the second tool that Paul is offering the Colossians. Truth does help protect us against temptations. Truth is a powerful antidote to the lies that tempt us away from Christ. What's the problem? We are really bad at remembering the truth. We're bad at it. The problem is that, isn't that God hasn't done amazing things in our lives. The problem isn't that we haven't seen a miraculous transformation because of the work of Christ. The problem isn't that God doesn't keep his promises. What's the problem? We forget. We don't reflect on it. We don't remember. We don't rejoice. And the problem is when we forget these things, when we forget to be thankful for it, we end up forgetting the truth. And when we forget the truth, we become susceptible to temptations that call us away from Christ. But listen again to what Paul says. We always thank God. So the object of his gratitude is towards God. Why? Why is it towards God? Because he knows that God is the one who is completing this work. We see that by the list of what he's thankful for. Why is he thankful? Because of these things. The first thing that Paul is thankful for, we see later in verse uh, 4, is because of their faith, love, and hope. These three themes, faith, love, and hope, are found all throughout the Bible. Often Paul uses those to, to define, to demonstrate what true Christianity looks like. True Christianity is a Christianity of faith, hope, and love. And we see those three things right here. It says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Paul first points to their faith. Paul says, since we heard of your faith 
in Christ Jesus. Now, there's something here that Paul does that's interesting, and it's not something I picked up on my own when I was just reading through this. It was actually while I was studying that I, I realized that this is what happened. And, and it's an interesting thing that I think bears, uh, that should be shared with all of us. It's worth mentioning. When, when Paul talks about their faith in Christ, I think the natural way for us to think of that is that they're, the object of their faith is Christ. Your faith towards Christ. That's what you believe. Okay, what, what is their faith on? What is it about? Well, it's about Jesus. Now, before I go much further, let me tell you, that is something that our faith must. Christ is the object of our faith. And Paul talks about that in many of his books. And he says, your faith in Jesus, he's talking about Christ being the object of our faith. But that's not what's happening here. When Paul talks about Christ being the object of their faith, the way he sets up the sentence is either he uses no preposition. I know this is English and grammar, but stick with me. He either uses no preposition, he just talks about faith, Jesus, which in Greek works fine, and they would understand, okay, that's faith in Jesus. Or he uses a specific preposition that talks about the direction towards something. It's what Paul does in Colossians 2.5. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. The word there, that in word, that preposition is towards Christ. Your faith that is directed towards Christ. He is the object of your faith. But the word in here in our verse is a different preposition. It's a location preposition. It's the same one that is used in verse 2, all the, the faithful brothers in Colossae. Where, where are the brothers? They're in Colossae. He says here, your faith in Christ. He's not talking just about the object of their faith. He's talking about the means of their faith. One of the things that we sometimes misconstrue is that we think that the way that our faith is produced is something that we are doing. It's not. It's not in our own strength. Oh, well, I have faith. Jesus did the work on the cross, but now I'm doing the work of believing. You're not. I can't. You can't. Even that work of believing is also carried out in Christ. Paul's thankfulness, even here, is not pointing to a work they're doing. It's pointing to a work that Christ is doing. Your faith in Christ. He then goes on to talk about their love. Paul has confidence in affirming their faith because he has heard of their love. Paul has heard of the love they have for all the saints. Now I want us to notice two things about this. Notice the scope and the recipients. The scope of their love is all, and the recipients are the saints. Culturally, culturally, right now, there are a lot of ways people divide themselves into groups, whether it be economic, uh, national divisions, ethnic divisions, or, or anything else. There are lots of ways that we seek to divide ourselves, and it can be hard to love them because they're not part of us. And as bad as there is at times for us, it was way worse when Paul wrote this. The divisions culturally ethnically, nationally, economically, were rampant in this time. There's whole sections of the Bible that Paul had to address these things. 
And yet, what does he say about the Colossians? Your love for all the saints. And he's not just saying, oh, well, no, some of the saints, you know, just just the ones there. No, because later he's going to talk about Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, all of them. They have love for them. How is that helpful for Paul in knowing their faith is genuine? Because of what Christ said in John 13. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Paul is thankful for their faith and he's confident in in their faith because he can see their love. He knows that they are disciples. We then reach hope. Paul is thankful since he heard of their faith in Christ Jesus and of the love they have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. This, again, is another section that I had to labor over. Because how does the hope laid up in heaven serve as a foundation for their faith and love? How is that because of the hope laid up in heaven, how is that progressing their faith and their love? Here's, here's what I want you to notice. When he talks about faith, he said, your faith. When he talked about the love, he says the love that you have. It's their faith and love. But he doesn't say that about hope. He doesn't say your hope. He says the hope. That's because he's not talking about the activity or attitude of hope. He's talking about the substance and reality the hope is based on. Now, we are called to be people that have hope. Pastor Billy preached a message before Christmas all about hope. That hope is our confident expectation of what God has promised he's going to do. It's an attitude of the heart. And often when when the Bible talks about hope, it's in that type of hope. Not the world's hope of wishful thinking. It's that confident expectation. I know Christ is going to do this, and I am having my hope on that, and it is changing the way I live today. But there's also the way that the Bible talks about hope being the hope itself, the substance of it. What is the thing we have hope in? Look what he says. The hope laid up for you in heaven. Who or what is that? It's Christ. Colossians 1.27, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ is our hope. Christ is the hope. How, what is, is developing their faith? What is causing their faith to grow? What is causing their love to expand? The hope laid up for them in heaven. It's Christ. It's the work of Christ. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God, Christ who is in heaven. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The substance of our hope, not just the emotion, the attitude of our hope, the substance of our hope is Christ. These are the reasons to be thankful. Paul is pointing them to the truth. 
He is thankful because of the faith that he sees in them. He is thankful because of their love. He is thankful because it is the hope. It is Christ that is developing these things. Paul is next thankful because it's the result of the gospel. Verse 5, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Paul is thankful for the gospel and what it is accomplishing. Later in this letter, he's going to remind them who they were before the gospel. But right now, he's reminding them of what they have received. The hope he talks about, the hope they've heard of, they've heard about it in the word of truth, the gospel. Remember, Paul's concerned about the lies, the heresies that will enter the church and tempt people away from Christ. Here, he confirms that what they heard is true. Don't depart from this. This is what is truly producing change in your life. This is the truth. Don't allow some quick and flashy lie to turn you away from the majesty and glory of what is true in the gospel. How does Paul encourage them to realize the truth of what they received? Because he's pointing them to what the gospel has done. The gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you. Paul offers two kinds of evidence on the truth of the gospel. The first is the evidence that the gospel is changing people around the world. If someone comes to you and says, I have something that will change your life, how are you going to react to that? I'm often skeptical. Before, and it really depends on how much they're asking me to invest in this thing that apparently is going to change my life. No, 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 no. It's not a pyramid scheme. It's just this thing. You are a partner under me, and you can have other partners under you. Okay. And I'm listening, and I'm, no, but it's going to change your life. And I'm skeptical. I want evidence. I want proof. Show me the results that really this changes my life. And depending on exactly what it is and what's being offered, how large of an investment it is, that's how much of proof I want. That's how big of a sample size I want to see. And Paul offers immense evidence. The gospel is bearing fruit and increasing in the whole world. Lives are being changed, and then those lives are impacting other lives so that they believe in the gospel. It is bearing fruit and increasing. It's the idea of, of, of a tree that's bearing fruit, and those, that fruit falls, and that seed is planted. And that tree continues to grow and continues to bear fruit, but now there's another tree. And that tree continues to grow, and eventually it bears fruit. And it keeps on growing. It is bearing fruit and increasing. This is the evidence. Look around you. See what a difference this is making. Paul's second evidence is their own lives. Their lives are different. They've already believed and their lives have already been changed since you heard it, since you understood it. You can look and see, wait, I'm not who I used to be. I am different. Why? 
It's not because I had all of these plans and this perfect method more than Jesus. It's not because I trusted in something less than Jesus. It's because I trusted in just Jesus and my life is different. This is a test that doesn't apply just to the Colossians. Think for yourself, where, where have you seen true transformation? I don't just mean someone who lost, went onto a diet and lost a lot of weight or someone who uh, came into a lot of money and so their circumstances changed. I mean that you truly can think of someone whose life transformed and transformed for the better. That you can say, I can't explain this of how this person is a totally different person. Can you think of some examples of people that you have seen that be true? Can you think of any of those being because of something other than the gospel? Now, just for the sake of argument, let's say that you do come up with an example of someone that trans was transformed for the better apart from Christ. But I think that even if you did, you're not going to think of many examples. Can you think of examples where the same thing is what caused transformation, not just here, but all across the world. This last week, my parents were uh, serving up in the Amazon jungle with lots of different missionaries, and they were uh, teaching those missionaries and investing in their lives. And so my, my parents were sending different pictures of what they were doing, and all of these people who left so much behind in order to go be missionaries, serve others, teach others, proclaim truth. Why were they doing that? Because they believed in the power of what the gospel can do. Because they were bearing fruit and increasing. On Friday, I texted Dan Ransom, our missionary in Italy. Italy's a hard place to serve. Especially over the last years with everything that happened, Dan and, and Elizabeth, when they were here, they shared a lot about the trials that they've gone through. Why is Dan over there? What hope is he relying on of what's actually going to produce change in the church that he serves in? The gospel. I also texted with a friend who's a pastor in, uh, locally here, and we were talking about what we were going to preach about this week. We were encouraging one another. What, what is it that's really producing and changing things in his church? The gospel. When I look in this room and I look at different people's stories here, I know some of your stories, and know the different changes, the transformation that's happened in your life. What caused it? The gospel. When I look at my own life, and know that I was a sinner far from God. That I was dead in my trespasses and sins. But God, who was rich in mercy, sent his son because he loved the world. He sent his son to be a sacrifice for me. He died in my place and he called me to be his child. And I placed my faith in him and my life is different. He gave me the right to be called a child of God. That transformation, I can't think of anything that wide, that dramatic of a transformation that is not the gospel. So for Paul to say, listen, it's the result of the gospel. We're thankful for that. Don't be distracted by other things. Nothing can do what the gospel has already done. The common denominator of all these things is not where we went to school. It's not the parents we had. It's not the messages we heard. The common denominator is the gospel. Is that we were lost. We were sinners. But Christ died for us. We placed our faith in Jesus. 
and he completely transformed us. Do we see how this could protect us from the temptations that seek to call us away from Christ? When we remember the truth of the gospel, we will remember that without Christ, we had nothing, but with Christ, we have everything. Think about how powerful that is in protecting us from these temptations. If someone comes up and says, I have something that will change your life, I have the solution, and their solution is either adding or taking away from Christ what should be the truth, shouting in our minds, my life's already been changed. I've already been given the solution. And it's not more than Jesus, it's not less than Jesus, it's just Jesus. Paul then expresses his thankfulness for the ministry of Epaphras. He says in verse 7, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. In Paul's gratitude for Epaphras, Paul is affirming the teaching of Epaphras. Paul is demonstrating to the Colossians that they can trust what they learned from Epaphras. Why? Because Epaphras is a faithful minister of Christ. Epaphras is a minister on their behalf. Epaphras did not go to them for personal gain. He did not seek to deceive them. He proclaimed what was true. Paul is thankful because he's even seen, Epaphras has told them that he has revealed, made known to Paul their love in the spirit. Paul is thankful for the ministry of Epaphras because God has used him to proclaim the gospel and that gospel has produced results in the Colossians' lives. It is based on the hope that is laid up for them in heaven, which has strengthened their love for all the saints and their faith in Christ Jesus. So what's the point? How does Paul want this to impact us? If you look at this passage, there's, there's no imperatives. There's no commands. He doesn't say, do this. And yet he gives us an example. He's demonstrating in his own life what he is using and relying to protect him against temptations that would call him away from Christ. What is the example Paul is setting in this second portion? It's thankfulness. Thankfulness for the truth of what we have in Christ. I think we often underestimate the power of gratitude. A lot of times I think we look at thankfulness as something for the benefit of the person receiving thanks. Oh, well, I want to say thank you because that will make them feel better. But thankfulness serves an important purpose in our own lives. It helps us remember. Remember what has happened. We can see this example. Can you think of a a person or a people that had a hard time remembering because they weren't thankful for what God had done? How about the entire nation of Israel? God called them out of Egypt. He set the captives free. He made a way for them to cross what was impossible for them to do in their own strength. He placed a hope before them that they were going to the promised land. God did incredible things for Israel, but they quickly forgot, and the result was that they were tempted away from God. What did they do while they were in the wilderness? We want to go back. Let's go back to Egypt. It was better back where we were. We should go back. What did they build in the wilderness? A golden calf. We need a God like the other nations. We need something we can see. Had they seen when they were in Egypt, those gods protect those people? No. They forgot. And so they were tempted away. Do we not also struggle with the same thing? God called us out of slavery. He set us free. He made a way through the cross for us to be with him, which was impossible to do on our own. 
God laid up for us a hope that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. God has done incredible things. How quickly we forget. When we lose sight of the glory of the truth of what we have received in Christ, then the seductive nature of temptation becomes so much stronger. This shouldn't be. Instead, we need to strive to remember the truth of what we have received through thankfulness. Thankfulness for what we have in Christ guards us against temptations that call us away from Christ. As we conclude, we need to realize that this threat is real. This temptation that is calling us away from Christ, this is real and it's dangerous, but there's an antidote, truth. We have truth. Truth is the antidote to the lies of temptations. The problem is we forget, so we need to be reminded of truth. Over the years, I have been both the recipient and the giver of counseling. And one of the things that often happens in counseling is that there reaches this point of crisis where where maybe someone is being tempted or they have already fallen to the temptation. And often, and people have done this for me and I have done this for others, where we get to this point where he said, I think you know this, but I just want to remind you of what's true. Right now, you need to remember what is true. Because these things that seem so attractive to you, when they are compared to the glory of the truth we have in Christ, they are not going to be as appealing. So let me remind you of what's true. That's what Paul's done. This is the truth of who you are in Christ. This is the truth of what you have received in Christ. So what is our response? Be confident of that. Be affirmed in this. Don't let something else pull you away because what you have is so much better. What do we do with all the things that Christ has given? Remember, be thankful for them. I can also say, though, that this doesn't just happen. If this is not a habit that we are working on, it doesn't happen. What does Paul say? We always thank God. Over and over, he's saying, look, do these things with thankfulness. We need to practice this. Now, there are many ways in which you can do this. I'm not going to tell you how. I'm not going to say, oh, well, you need to do this. You, you could do a journal. You could have a, a way in which you pray for these things. You could sing different songs of worship that remind you of these things. You could memorize or read through various confessions of our faith. You could use this as you are leading your family in times of worship. You could sh- have other brothers and sisters you call and share these things of this is who I am. This is what Christ has done. I don't know exactly what method will work best for you, but here's the elements that you should include. Remember, reflect, rejoice. If you read through the Psalms, you'll often find those three things. Remember truth. This is what God has done. This is who I am in Christ. This is what, uh, this is what he has given me in Christ. Remember that truth. Then reflect on that truth. Reflect on what it means. Let it saturate your soul and overwhelm you that this is the reality of what has happened when you are in Christ. And then rejoice. It's a whole lot harder to be tempted into something else when you are overwhelmed with joy regarding what you already have. (laughs) Wait, you want to tempt me with this? Do you not understand how happy I am with this thing? I can't tempt away something from my kids that they're like, no, I love this. You're going to give me that thing? No, that's way worse. I love this. Remember the truth. Reflect on the truth. Rejoice in the truth. 
For the danger is real, but the temptation is far less appealing. The lies are far less enticing when we can compare them to the glorious truth of who we are and what we have in Christ. Truth in Christ guards us against temptations that call us away from Christ.